Today we're starting a new series called The Seven Signs of Jesus. Seven Signs of Jesus, it's also the first Sunday of Lent, and this will carry us all the way up to Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday will be the seventh sign, and uh, that's also our grand opening where you are invited to invite um, anyone and everyone to our opening service on Easter Sunday. Seven signs leading up to that day, uh, and uh, we're going to start the first sign. This also corresponds with all of our woven groups, our small groups. Um, just last night, I had, a couple of, I had a couple of people over at my house, and we already talked about this first sign, and some of you are going to be talking about it in your small groups this, this week to come. Um, so we're all as a community in the Gospel of John right now, and I think this is really good. We're in the Gospel of John. So why don't we open, if you have your Bible, to John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Or you can look with me on the screen. I'm going to ask you in a loud and, clear vo- loud and clear voice if you could read together with me John chapter 2, starting from verse 1. I'm sorry, did I say 1 to 7? It's 1 to 11. So we're going to read 11 verses. So here we go. Ready? On the third day... There was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there, for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water, so they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now, and take it to the head waiter. And so they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Let's read this last verse loud and clear all together now. Verse 11. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. It says right there in the last verse, this beginning of his signs. So, Clearly, we have some indication here that this is the start of something. This is the start of the signs, as it says. And this is going to carry on um, at least for the next 12 chapters up to John chapter 12, um, where we're going to see these seven signs. So our study through the signs is going to take us up there. But truth be told, the whole book of John is a book of signs. The whole book of John, from beginning to end, is about the signs of Jesus. In fact, when you get close to the end of the story, it says something interesting. In John chapter 20, verse 30, it says, Therefore, now this is kind of, if you were to write a, you know, if you were to write a paper, for some of you younger folks that are fresh out of college, you remember this, you have to wrap up your paper, you have to, or sometimes you have to put the main idea in the beginning, but you have a conclusive statement. What you have in the end is a conclusive statement about signs. At the end of the Gospel of John, therefore, many other signs Jesus performed, and these have been written or recorded so that 
you may believe. So what's the purpose of signs? What is that conclusive statement? So that we might believe. It's as simple as that. All of these signs where Jesus turns water into wine, where he resurrects Lazarus, where the sick boy is healed from afar, and so on and so forth, all the way to the very end, the cross, Jesus performs all these signs for the purpose in the Gospel of John so that you and I might believe. Now, this is 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, and maybe Jesus anticipated that. He anticipated that maybe 2,000 years ago in Alexandria Elementary on Fry Road in Katy, Texas, there's going to be a group of Christians gathered. How will they believe? They haven't heard. They haven't, they've heard, but they haven't seen with their eyes. And he says something. He says in verse 29 of chapter 20, Because you've seen me, have you believed? He's talking to Thomas. And then he says, Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. In other words, Blessed is woven church 2,000 years from now. A group of Christians who did not see all these things take place, and yet they believed. Even more blessed are those. Blessed are we. So that far removed, and yet we are even more blessed. Even more blessed because we believed without having seen. Let me ask you this. Maybe you have seen a sign. Maybe you have seen something with your eyes. Think. So we're talking about signs and miracles. I know in my life I've seen at least, at least one. I've seen something at least once that told me, whoa, that was just weird. I didn't expect that. That was, that was, that's got to be God. Too coincidental. At least once. So this thing about signs and experiencing signs, that's what I want to focus on as we make our way through three headings. So if you look in your notes, I'm going to talk about three words, three concepts in our passage today. The first is sign. Second is hour. And third is glory. So we have sign, hour, and glory. Those are the three headings for today that we're going to talk about. And we're really going to focus in on not just, I mean, the signs of Jesus, yes, but also the sense of your, the signs that you've received in your life. How is this personal to you? So let's begin with that first heading, sign. Look at verse 11 as we start off with that first heading. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Galilee. In verse 11, it talks about the beginning of the signs. And that word there is where I want to hone in. The word sign. That word in the, in the, in the ancient language, um, Simeon, it can be translated miracle. Some of your Bibles, some of your versions will say this is the beginning of his miracles that Jesus did. Does anybody's Bible say that? Miracle? The thing about miracle is that yes, Jesus performs a miracle, but something is missing from that word. The word sign more adequately captures this idea because the purpose of a sign is not the, the sign itself, but to point to something beyond itself. So just as most of you drove in, you, mo you may have drove in from the, I guess that would be the west entrance, right here, 
to the school. And as you came into the parking lot, you saw, you know, an A-frame. You saw a sign right there. It says, Woven Church. And then an arrow pointing this way for parking. Correct? How many of you saw the sign on the way in? Right. Now, obviously, the point of the sign is not so that once you pull up to the sign, you get out of your car, and everybody's gathered around the sign to worship by the sign. The purpose of a sign is to point beyond itself. The purpose of a sign is not that it, it itself is the essence or the objective. It's not the thing itself. It's not the substance. The sign is always pointing to something greater. The sign is pointing to something else. So these seven signs of Jesus each week, you know, these seven weeks as we study the sign, the purpose is not to say, let's figure out how he did that. Did he, you know, he took six stone jars. You know, some people really take this seriously. Maybe there was some residue, residue wine in there. Somehow it got diluted and maybe it tasted better. Or maybe he dropped some, you know, food coloring or something. How did he do that? That's not the object. That's not the point. The point of the signs the point of the signs is to see what it's pointing to. That's why it's better to translate that word signs and not just miracles. Because it's not just a miracle itself. It's a sign that's pointing to something greater. A couple of weeks ago, we had um, a brother here. So it's public knowledge, so there's no reason for me to not tell his story. And he shared about... Um, he shared about um, going through some rough earlier years, you know, growing up, doing some things, getting into some things that maybe he shouldn't have. And he began to get these signs from God. I, I believe this is how he described it. He began to get these signs from God. Like, I think God's trying to tell me something. Maybe I'm partying a little bit too hard. Maybe, maybe some of these activities and things that I'm doing are not beneficial. And it was like he was beginning to get these warnings, these promptings from God. Now here's the thing. Did he listen? The question is also, do we listen? Lots of times you get this sense of, I think God's trying to tell me something. And then what we do is we say, it was just a coincidence. Can't be. And then we continue going on our own path. For this brother, after all these signs from God, it finally took a moment of, so to speak, hitting, hitting rock bottom with literally the needles in his arm, a blackout, near-death experience. And it was almost as if God said, this is your last sign. Will you heed it and see what it's pointing to? The thing is, the thing about signs is, most importantly, and these are the three questions for reflection in our notes, what is the last sign? Has God said, this is the last sign, this is the last time I'm going to tell you this, for your own good? The second question to reflect on is, what is it trying to tell me? What is it pointing to? What is it communicating? And the third question for reflection is, look, how seriously am I going to take these signs? So don't worry about the veracity of the miracle, how it happened. This is not a science, friends. This is about a self-reflection. This is about looking inward and recognizing 
the signs that are shown to me, how, how am I responding to those signs? That is the question. How am I responding to those signs? Funny thing is, thing about rock bottom is, for some of us, for a lot of us, you know, you don't have to be, you don't have to be, you know, strung out on, on a substance. For common people, we like to hang out at rock bottom. We're still not listening to God. And what are we doing in rock bottom? But digging deeper, we're hanging out there with a shovel, seeing how much deeper we can go. And the signs keep coming. The signs keep coming. And we either heed or we dig ourselves into a deeper hole that makes it harder to climb out. Harder to climb out. So, again, this word sign, it points to something beyond itself. Jesus did a great miracle. Wow, what's the point? What is it trying to tell me? That's the question. What is the sign pointing to? And how seriously am I taking it? The second heading is hour. So we've talked about sign. Let's talk about this word, hour. In verse verse 4, Jesus says, My hour has not yet come. And this is an interesting introduction to the Gospel of John. What does he mean? What does the hour refer to? When he says, my hour has not yet come, okay, what's going to happen in 60 minutes? The thing is, for the next, oh boy, for the next 12 chapters, he keeps saying this, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come. And it begins, to, it begins to raise the question, what is he talking about? What, what, what is this hour that he's speaking of? What is this hour? And the funny thing is, once you hit chapter 12, and you can look this up on your, on your own, once he hits chapter 12, all of a sudden he says, the hour has come. And from that point on to the end of the gospel, he says again and again, the hour has come, the hour has come. And I'm not going to get into that. I'm going to let you look that up on your own. But from now, chapter, chapter, this is chapter 2, all the way to the next 10 chapters, he's saying again, the hour has not come. What does this hour mean? What is he talking about? I'm not going to answer that. Think for yourself what you think the hour might mean. What is this hour? But one thing, one thing is clear. And that one thing is that it's not yet time. When he says the hour has not yet come, the one thing that's clear is it's not time yet. It's not time yet. So he's saying, you want me to perform a miracle at a wedding. And it's very interesting. You want me to take, you, you, you want me to, 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 to do something. And he takes purified water and he turns it into wine. I mean, it's ironic because he does it anyway. But what's interesting is Jesus says it's not time yet, but listen to the words of the head waiter in verse 10. The head waiter says, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. You've kept the good wine until now. So you've got this double sense. On the one hand, Jesus saying it's not time yet, And on the other hand, the time is now. And that can be literally translated until this very immediate moment. So on the one hand, something is not yet time. 
But on the other hand, something significant has definitely come onto the scene this moment. Something has definitely already begun. You know, in our, uh, when it comes to faith, it's many times like that. Maybe for you, you're here at this moment and you're saying, I'm not sure if I'm there yet where I can identify myself as Christian. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. I'm not sure if I can call myself a Christian. I remember when I was about 17 years old, I was on a subway in New York City. And somewhere in midtown Manhattan, I was holding onto the rail and doing this. And another guy, um, an, an older man, I mean, now he would be younger than me, but another guy was holding on the same rail and reading the New Testament. And he's reading the New Testament like this. And I noticed and I said, oh, wow, are you a Christian? And for some reason, I've never forgotten this. I've, I've never forgotten this man. I still remember, you know, what he looked like. And he looked at me with this really puzzled expression. I asked him, are you a Christian? And it was almost like I asked him like this deep existential like, question that he wasn't sure if he could. I mean, for all I knew, he could have been a, philosopher stu a philosophy student at one of the local colleges there and trying to figure out exactly what he believed. So he picked up the Gospel of John. And so he's reading. And he looked at me and with this kind of inner tormented, finally he, he said, yes. It was enough. It, it, was, it was interesting enough for me to remember to this day. Are you a Christian? I guess I am. Are you a Christian? Yes. Are you a Christian? I'm not sure. My hour has not yet come. Maybe you're like that man I met that was on the subway. That if I were to ask you, are you a Christian? You might say, oh, uh, maybe. My hour has not yet come. I'm not sure if I'm there yet. But, and here's the big but, something has definitely changed. That ever since those six months ago or whenever it was I started this journey or I started coming out to a woven church or whenever I started reading this blasted book, I'm not sure if I can say I'm signed off yet, I'm a card-carrying member of the Christian church, but one thing I do know is ever since I began this journey, something has changed. I am not exactly the same dude I was yesterday, two days ago, two months ago, two years ago. Something has definitely changed. I've behaved differently towards my loved ones. I'm thinking about life. I'm thinking about deeper things. I'm trying to change my life around. Something is definitely changed. I'm just not sure if I'm there yet. In that sense, very similarly, when Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, but the head waiter says, no, 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 something has come. The hour is now. If you are who you say you are and you're on the scene now, then we're talking about life change. Jesus says, okay, let's see what happens in our lives, in your life. Maybe for you, the hour has not yet come to call yourself a Christian. I'm not going to force you there. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to force you to fully embrace faith now if you're not ready. But you know that in your life, something has already definitively changed. And the reason you know something has changed 
is because you're a wine connoisseur. Or maybe not a connoisseur of wine, but you're a connoisseur of life. You know that the life that you lived before is of a lesser vintage. But you know that the drafts that you're drinking now are actually much more fulfilling, much more deeper. You're a connoisseur of a decent life and a better life. You remember the days yesterday. You remember what it meant for you today to start on this journey. There's a story, um, some of you might not remember the Reagan administration, some of you will. During the Reagan administration, he had a Surgeon General who made a lot of waves. Does anybody remember the Surgeon General? <laughs> Does anybody remember what he looked like? Big white beard. He always came out on public service announcements. He was anti-smoking and a number of other things. Nobody remembers his name? Coop. Coop. C. Everett Coop. Um, significant, he did significant work. He, he got a lot of flack. A lot of flack. Um, and uh, both sides of the aisle, he took a lot of heat. But, you know, he, he really made great strides. He was the first Surgeon General to be really visible and to really kind of um, address important issues. The thing is, the man was a Christian. C. Everett Koop started off as, uh, I'm not exactly sure what kind of a doctor, but um, he was a physician and eventually became, you know, I guess the general of physicians, whatever you call that, surgeon general, right? But he tells about the moment of when he started, uh, the moment when he came to a church and something definitively began. He was not ready. He was not yet there where he could say, the hour has come, I'm a Christian. And it's very interesting. It goes like this. Um, he was a young physician, and he decided, you know, he wanted to figure out what this religion thing was about. So he shows up at the doorsteps of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He walks in through the back door. He doesn't want anybody to see him. Not one of those fanatics. <laughs> anybody here that I know? Okay goes in, in those older Presbyterian churches, they'd have a balcony. So you go up the back stairs, sits down in the balcony, puts his uh, collar up and just sits and listen, listens to the preacher, watches all the, the brainwashed masses. <laughs> and as he sits there and he listens, he begins to become compelled and he tells about this experience. He says, the next Sunday I finished grand, grand rounds early. I found my feet taking me to 10th Presbyterian Church. I entered the back door and I quietly slipped up the balcony. I was just going to observe. The thing is, I liked what I saw. I was fascinated by what I heard. I saw a congregation that responded willingly and generously to social needs. This was no empty religion. These were real people that cared about real people. I heard teaching from one of the most learned men I ever knew, a true scholar who also possessed the gift of illustrating the complexity and simplicity of Christian doctrine. This is Dr. Donald, Gray, Donald Barnhouse, great preacher at that time. So I was interested enough, interested enough to go back the next Sunday morning. So he went back the next Sunday morning. And after a few hours later, I was so compelled, I returned for the evening service. I did that each Sunday for two years. 
for two years. And during that time, after about seven months, seven months of doing this, I began to realize that I had become a participant and not just an observer. Something was not yet, but it was becoming. A participant and not just an observer. And what made sense to that congregation, all those brainwashed Christians out there, eventually began to make sense to me. It made sense to me. Over those several months, sitting in the balcony at 10th Presbyterian, the preaching made it all clear. I understood the meaning of the crucifixion. I understood the meaning of Christ's sacrifice. I understood the meaning of divine forgiveness. And most of all, I understood the love of God. You know, that's something that I, with the most eloquent words, or with a pen dipped in gold, cannot convey. That is almost the feeling that you just have to experience. Even as we sang that song, it's who you are, it's who you are about the Father. Fatherhood, especially for those of us with less than perfect or no fathers. That connection where the father meets the child, that feeling, that's something that maybe will take seven months for you. I don't know. But for C. Everett Koop, at that moment, it clicked. He understood all these things. Most importantly, he understood the love of God. And at that moment, he said, I was a believer. I was a believer. So, just reflect for yourself. I don't know if it's my hour yet. I don't know if I'm at that point or I'm going to do the Jesus thing or the church thing. All I know is that now I'm, I've begun drinking better vintages. All I know is that now there is a better wine on the scene. All I know is that everything before was just Bud Light compared to the real, the, the real deal and the real thing now. <laughs> and all I know is I keep getting these darn signs from God that seem too coincidental to be true. Sometimes it's like, you know, these things happen and it's kismet. It's uncanny. It's like, you know, McFly, are you there? Do you hear what I'm trying to say? Are you sure you want to keep doing that? Are you sure you want to keep going that route? Are you sure this is best for you? Do you know I love 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 you? What? Who are you? Why do you love me? I love you because I love you because I love you. That's the Father's love. I don't need the Father's love. I'm fine on my own. That's fine. But you know I love you. <laughs> I'll be waiting for you right here. And the persistence of those signs, constantly pointing beyond themselves to something greater until the hour has come for you. Third and last heading in word is glory. glory. In verse 11, it says, at that moment, Jesus manifested his glory and the disciples believed in him. 
that word manifest can mean disclose. Disclose. He revealed something. He showed them something. It can be translated. It, it can accurately be translated. He showed them how wonderful he was. He showed them how wonderful he was. And therefore, that word and, it's a, it's a, it's a cause and effect clause. He showed them how wonderful he was, and therefore, and this is the objective of John, they believed in him. He showed them how wonderful he was through the sign. The sign showed them, whoa, this guy can, this guy, this guy, <laughs> this guy's obviously not a, not a, you know, a, a, you know, a tightly wound up Christian. You know, what did he do? He bought the next round for everybody. He showed them how wonderful he was. He comes on the scene, and what does he do? He tops off everybody's drinks. He says, the next round is on me. I thought this was God. God should be coming around, cork, stop drinking, it's bad for you. Okay, yes. But what does Jesus do? He actually livens up the party. He livens up the party. So he, he shows them, now this is not an argument for licentiousness or, you know, getting a little crazy. Okay? That's not the point. But at the same time, aren't we scandalized by that? The first miracle that Jesus does is to get the party started. I've been going to church my whole life, and all I've learned is how to kind of behave. And I'm teaching my kids how to behave. And yet the reality of the gospel message is the first thing he does, the first miracle he does, is get the party started. I was about 10 years old when I started going to youth group. Caitlin, I don't know, how, how old are you? You're 10? 13. Okay, you're not 10. 13. So I was a little bit younger than her, and I was not lucky to have a good youth pastor, <laughs> as you do. I had a, we, we were a small Korean church that time, and we were getting some help from the American church uh, that was loaning it out to us, and and uh, we had a we had an old man there that wore the, one of those really tight, like like really tight collars, clerical collar, and you know just to help out the Korean immigrants, right? He would come and he, he wouldn't even stand; he'd sit behind a table and he would talk, and he looked like he really didn't like us kids. And we didn't like him back. I didn't like this guy. He he really looked like he didn't. He stopped talking back there. And so I started, like, I remember rocking back and forth in my seat, <laughs> not because I was manic or something. I was just bored. And I started, like, saying, you know, can I go to the bathroom? <laughs> and in the middle of service, I was 10 years old, I just, it got to a point where I wouldn't even raise my hand. i just get up <laughs> and walk out. Of course, I didn't go to the bathroom. Don't get any ideas, Caitlin, okay? I would walk out, and I would, <laughs> really, don't get any ideas. I would hop the metal gate. In New, this is New York. This is what you do when you grow up in New York. This is why I raised my kids in Texas. And the metal gates in New York, they're like, they have spikes at the end, right? And I, 10 years old, and I would hop that thing and go across the street, and there was a corner shop there that sold comic books and candy. And <laughs> I was so embarrassed. I'd use the tithe, the money that I was supposed to offer to the church to buy, like, candy and comic books. 
And sometimes I would convert some of my friends to come with me and to do that too. So bad. And we'd, we'd, <laughs> we'd both risk our lives hopping this metal fence, use the money we're supposed to give to the church to buy all this stuff, and we'd sit on the stoop of the church, great witness to the world, reading X-Men and eating, you know, getting our fingers orange with cheese doodles. And when I hit 13, I was a big shot, and I said, Mom and Dad, I am not going to church anymore, okay? I'm a man now. You can't tell me what to do. The funny thing is, around the age of 13, at one of those summer camps, something happened. For crying out loud, why did that have to happen? To this day, I'd have orange fingers, and I'd be a comic book artist. But at that camp, something happened where Jesus finally disclosed himself to me and showed me how wonderful he was. I'm sorry, I know that sounds really cliche-ish and cheesy, but it was real. Something, I don't know what it was, maybe it was the clash of prepubescent hormones combined with longing for father figure and you know, Freudian, um, you know, Freudian longings and some existential crisis at the age of 13. For some reason, something happened and I was sitting around this campfire and Jesus showed me how wonderful he was and like the floodgates opened and 13 years of pent-up you know, Asian parents saying, stop crying. You're not supposed to cry. And it all came out. I, I think that was the last time I had a really good cry. That's how repressed I am. Sometimes Christianity needs to come to us afresh. But I, I, the, it was deep. It was, it was primal. That's the word. For me, it felt primal. It felt primal. And, and something came out, and it was like a wail and a heavy sob. And... I knew that I knew that I, I knew that something was real. Something real was happening. And I felt a warmth. And Jesus showed me how wonderful he was. He showed me how wonderful he was. And therefore I believed in him. That's what it says in verse eleven, does it not? He showed the disciples how wonderful he was, and therefore they believed in him. He showed me how wonderful he was, and therefore I believed in him. And the funny thing is, the hour still had not yet come. I was still going on the porch and eating cheese doodles. I was still skipping out on service. It took maybe another two years for me, I'm a slow learner, to finally kind of settle in and say, the hour has come, I think I'll be a Christian, I think I'll clean up my language, so on and so forth. The hour has come. Finally, when the hour came, I mean, the good wine at that point was already flowing and I knew that I was not the same kid. I'm going to close off with just this last thought. Has Jesus manifested his glory to you? And you're going to say, Yes, or you're going to say, not like the way he did it for you. I don't know that what this primal scream or this heavy weep, I haven't had that experience. And that's okay. It doesn't, that doesn't happen that way for everybody. Have you had a couple of signs that are trying to tell you something? It's like writing on a wall. It's like the woven sign out there pointing, pointing. Look this way. The last question and the fill in the blank in your notes is, do I dare look to where the sign is pointing? 
there's that. Um, sometimes Jesus also has to give us, sometimes God also gives us warnings. I'm a slow learner, even as a Christian. One sign is not enough. Do I dare look to what the sign is trying to communicate? Is that the best choice for your life? Is this where you want to go? I love you, I love you, I love you.